Welcome to the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, expository Bible sermons from the preaching and teaching ministry of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, for the glory of God and the proclamation of His Word. We thank you for listening. And now, High Point Baptist Church pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr. As you turn into your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, where we left off last week, I, I now realize I do need to change the pulpit clock uh, because it says noon, which means we're already done. And while I'm at it, I think I'll give myself an extra 15 minutes to, so that I'll start ending my sermons on time. And uh, I'll do this now while I'm thinking of it. I think if I can get this correct, there we go. Now we are all set. It is 10.45. That's right. We'll be done on time. (laughs) I do intend to be, uh, well, a little bit judicious in our message this morning. I realized that our clocks were set back, and that was much easier to get up this morning, but our stomachs are not accustomed to that yet, and so now you are just used to uh, getting ready to uh, go home and eat your lunch and those kinds of things, and we also want to be sure to let you out early today in order to encourage you and help you come back tonight. We have a very important evening. Uh, We enjoy our Sunday evenings together in the ministry of God's Word. Also, in um, spending time as a congregation in prayer, we dedicate between 30 and 45 minutes of our time on Sunday evenings in prayer. And tonight, if you have our app on your phone, um, then you received a push notification asking you to make the time to come out tonight as we specifically emphasize evangelism this evening in the outreach ministries of our church. We had an elders meeting this last week, and a major portion of which was talking about efforts and new things that our church can begin to do to reach our community with the truth of the gospel. And we want you to participate in that. We want you to participate in praying for that in the development of those ministries, and we also want you to prayerfully consider your involvement in them, too. So, turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you haven't done so, if you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the backs of the seat in front of you, or perhaps you can just raise your hand and one of the ushers will gladly get you a Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we are in verses 11 through 16 this morning. Follow along with me as I read, "...but flee from these things, you man of God." And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which you will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As we come to this text, we begin to see Paul bringing his argument, his entire letter to his son of the faith, Timothy, to a close. And and you can sense the urgency that he's writing with as he brings all of it to a head, all of it to a summation, and he concludes then in this this paragraph with a, a tremendous charge, just underscores, it highlights Timothy's duty as a shepherd of the church in Ephesus. We've learned quite a lot in the book that Paul has written to his son in the faith, Timothy. We've learned about Timothy's duty, his responsibilities, his responsibility to fight the good fight, his responsibility to be dedicated to the Word, both personally, personally applying the Word of Christ, and also teaching his flock those things. Repeatedly, we see that same phrase come up in Paul's letter to the church, or rather to his son in the faith, Timothy. Teach them these things. Teach them these things. Don't neglect these things. 
We might be lost. We might think that a letter to a pastor might not be directly applicable to the church, but in truth, it really is. We learn a lot about stewardship. We learn a lot about Christ's expectations for his church. We learn a lot about the godly man who is to shepherd Christ's church. We learn a lot about who the leaders of the church are supposed to be. We learn a lot about the character of a godly man who is to lead Christ's church and by which we can identify them whom God has called to shepherd the flock. And in learning these things, we realize that many of them we have applied in our church and many more we have yet to apply. We've learned that the church isn't run by committees. The church isn't, uh, in fact, there's no such thing as a committee in the New Testament church. We have two offices in the church, elders and deacons, and that's it. And those are the, that's the polity that we want to adopt here at High Point. That's the polity we have adopted here at High Point. And as it's been entrusted with the overseers of the church to do that very thing, to lead the flock of God as those who would be accountable to to the Lord, and Timothy notwithstanding, it is also the deacons who are exemplary in their service to the church, being a blessing to the congregation and to the overseers, Hebrews 13, 17 kind of a way, in which bring, they bring great joy to those who have been entrusted the stewardship of the church because of their faithful obedience, because of their character, their conduct their love for the flock, their love for the Lord that is shown in their commitment to the flock, their service, their sacrificial service to Him. But now, now in, in spite of the threat that continues to rage in Ephesus, Timothy, of course, being entrusted with the responsibility to remove the overseers of the church who are disqualified, false shepherds, wolves in sheep's clothing. And we've talked about the fact that a wolf in sheep's clothing is, is not the image that we typically get where uh, somebody walks into a church or, you know, the church is then pictured as a flock of sheep and you, you picture this wolf wearing a sheep's skin and he pretends to be one of the sheep. That's not a wolf in sheep's clothing. Because what, what good is a wolf that's pretending to be a sheep? Just being a member of the flock. The danger of the wolf in sheep's clothing is that he is a leader of the flock. Not so much the sheep. A wolf in sheep's clothing. A sheep, uh, and in the image of a person in sheep's clothing would have been the image of an Old Testament prophet. Or like that of John the Baptist. One who wears the designated attire of a prophet, yet he is a wolf. A man who is distinguishing himself as a shepherd of the church. Yet by his life, we've seen last last time, by his life, his lifestyle, his love of money, he's in truth the enemy of the church. His soul is lost. And his soul being lost, he doesn't care about your soul. He cares about how he can manipulate you, extort you, to satisfy whatever lust of the world that he might have. might be money. For, as we read, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. But money can, of course be extended in application to anything that the world has to offer. Anything tangible, anything that we might pursue other than Christ to build up our kingdoms, anything that would become idols in our lives. And so that, that is not to characterize Timothy. Timothy must warn the church against such individuals. And Timothy is to protect the church from such individuals. And Timothy is also to throw out such individuals from the church. Paul had already thrown out two, Hymenaeus and Alexander, and now has entrusted Timothy with the responsibility to continue that effort in ensuring godly, God-ordained leadership in the church in Ephesus. And that is, remains to be, one of the primary responsibilities for the overseer is to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Entrust these things to faithful men who are able to do what? You remember, train others also, right? The primary responsibility of the shepherd is to make disciples who will follow Christ, represent Christ, and represent Christ's word well. Rather than promoting his own kingdom, rather than distorting and twisting the words of God for his own sordid gain. 
your responsibilities are a little different. The Great Commission in Matthew chapter uh, 18 is, is to do what? It's to make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them, teaching them. We want to do those things. There is no sense of triviality in this letter to Timothy. This is Paul's son in the faith. Timothy was one who had courage, he had knowledge of the scriptures. And there are few whom Paul could trust with the difficult duties in Ephesus more. And so all of this comes to full weight now in our passage. That's why we begin to sense some renewed solemnity. It's not time to mess around. We're not here to play games in church and be entertained. We're here to worship the holy God who demands and requires holiness. Holiness that is His. Reinforcing the importance that the gospel we preach is the true gospel of God because the gospel is endecumenical. It's not a wide mercy gospel. Of course, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that narrow is the road that leads to eternal life and there are few who enter through also the narrow gate. It is a narrow way and it is the only way to eternal life. And so we have to get that gospel right. The narrow gospel message that is all-sufficient, the gospel message that says that there is salvation in no one else and no other name under heaven by which you might be saved. Only by believing in Jesus Christ, receiving His perfect righteousness accredited to you by faith. Any other message is a deviation. Any other message is apostate. Paul makes very clear in his letter to the church in Galatia that one who preaches the gospel of anything but the true gospel is anathema. He's damned. His soul is damned and his gospel damns. The salvation in that context of faith plus works. The salvation of Semi-Pelagianism that says, well, I can receive salvation, but I have an internal good to me. I have a righteousness of my own that I can contribute to my salvation. Sure, I believe in Jesus Christ, that he died. It made it possible for me to inherit eternal life. And now I just need to do my works to contribute to my salvation. It's an anathema gospel. Very similar to the gospel that Timothy is repudiating in Ephesus. Gospel of Judaizers who are infiltrating the church, sowing gospels of legalism. Gospels that say, well, sure, salvation is by Christ, the Messiah. However, However, you still need to adhere to Old Testament law. We hear that repeatedly again and again in so many different forms. 
And so, having set up, having painted a picture of the false teacher for us in 3D imagery, Paul then contrasts the life of Timothy. But by the way, it is not that this is a passive text for you, as in you can come to the text and say, well, that's very nice. I now know what is expected of my pastor. Because as Paul sets up Timothy's character in contrast to who these false shepherds are and what characterizes them, in truth, all he articulates are the cardinal characteristics of every true Christian. And so as as we proceed through, well, these five characteristics of a true shepherd, five commitments that he must make in order to be a man of God, you understand that these are also five commitments that ought to characterize you, five characteristics that ought to, to be your commitment. And if they don't, if your life is consistently characterized by that which is outside these things, I would implore you to put on the spirit of humility and honesty. And assess the nature of your condition before God. The perfect judge, the one who sees all things, including your heart, and maybe has appropriately deceived so many others, even in our church. I say appropriately because by your words, by your behavior, all things appear to be consistent with the life of a Christian. But you know in your heart it's just a facade. You're just keeping up the image. You know in your heart that you want to know Scripture because you want to appear knowledgeable. You want to have the answers. You love to be right, but not because you love God's Word. A life you know in your heart that conforms to a form of godliness while denying its power. You heap up all these works and appear righteous, but it's actually external righteousness. It is a righteousness of your own. It is not righteousness that is born from the heart and therefore is nothing less than hypocrisy. Because the vessel from which that righteousness comes from is polluted and vile. You draw water from an outhouse. So we wanna we wanna take these things seriously, don't we? I think so. I take these things seriously. As a shepherd, knowing what they mean for me, my accountability before God, and as your shepherd, knowing that my failure to abide by these things will ultimately be manifest in you. Much like a child will grow up and reflect the sins of their father, I find it incredibly ironic so many pastors who will leave their church agitated because of discontentment with their congregation. Their congregation's hospitality, their congregation's, maybe we could say mobility, their active ministry, their love for the gospel, love for God's word, love for the lost. Certainly that is true of many congregations in spite of their shepherd. And so in a righteous way, he leaves shaking the dust off his feet. 
but most, I'm greatly concerned, leave those churches not ever realizing that all their congregations did was reflect his weakness or weaknesses. They simply developed them. And so, any shortcoming in their lives are ultimately a reflection on the shortcomings in his, and he doesn't even see it. I think about that constantly. When I hear about weaknesses in our congregation, when I hear about areas that we need to grow in, I know that they are my weaknesses in areas that I need to grow in. And so, just as I take the text, I suppose with a pill of humility, I urgently request that you would do the same. And so, what is this first characteristic? What is this first commitment that we must make? If we want to be a congregation, if you want to be a Christian that honors God, that is worthy to be called a slave of the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, first, (laughs) the first characteristic is what he is identified by fleeing from. We might not readily ascribe that to somebody who is a strong leader or strong in the faith as one who is characterized by one who flees. Because we've seen repeatedly Paul also tell Timothy to stand firm, right? The the believer, the Christian, the pastor is to stand firm in the faith. He is to confront those who contradict. So, So what are we fleeing from exactly? Well, obviously, when we see this uh, demonstrative, these, we're looking right back at the section before where Paul talks about those who are conceited, understand nothing, those who love the things of this world, those who love money, those who, this is what identifies them, believe in a different doctrine. Flee from these things. The lifestyle that is consistent with one who believes in a different doctrine. Flee from these things. We see similar exhortation elsewhere. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, we saw a couple of months ago in our evening service as we've been working through that book, Paul says to Timothy, flee immorality. Now, obviously, there it is in the context of any uh, sexual deviancy. Immorality that is inappropriate, porneia is the word, that is sexual in nature. Flee immorality. That is the only appropriate response. In um, Genesis chapter 39, you might be immediately brought to the life of Joseph, right? Joseph, who, uh, who was sold into slavery by his brothers. Sold into slavery, taken off to Egypt. And by God's providence, he was actually eventually made a slave of an Egyptian who was put in charge of everything in the Egyptian's household. He was the overseer of the house, a prominent position, an honorable position. And because of his position and because he honored Christ, well, he was greatly blessed by God. Everything he touched, as it were, turned to gold. God heaped up blessings on him, and he continued to serve his Lord, continued to serve his Master. Until, of course, one day in Genesis chapter 39, we read of the occasion where the wife of his master pursues him to have an affair with her. And Joseph's response is persistent. My master has entrusted me with everything in his household, and there is nothing of his that he hasn't kept from me except you, his wife. Because you are his wife. And so how can I do this thing that would bring reproach to him and would dishonor my God? And of course, you know how the story goes. She persists. 
one day capturing him in a room alone with no other servants nearby. And she approaches him, he flees, she snatches his garment, and she's left with nothing but the garment. Evidence of his assault. So she accuses. So he's imprisoned then for two years. A man who is committed to integrity, to fleeing immorality, regardless of what those consequences were. And then, by the way, continue to honor and serve God in prison. But you know what's interesting about Joseph is that not, not only did he honor, continue honoring God in, in prison, but you know that he fled immorality, but it, it was because his mind trusted in his sovereignty, rather than God's sovereignty. He fled immorality, but he also fled unrighteous thinking. And we know that because by Genesis chapter 45, after Joseph had been entrusted uh, with the nation of Egypt by Pharaoh himself, as Joseph's brothers arrive in Egypt, he grants forgiveness to them. He doesn't allow bitterness to take root in his heart. He doesn't hold on to what would have been rightfully his in life. His father's love, affection, a co-laborer as a shepherd with his brothers, or any of those things. And Paul also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, to flee idolatry. Flee idolatry. The Corinthians had heaped up all kinds of things that they pursued other than Christ, and that led to their weak church, that led to a legalistic atmosphere in their church, though they thought so much of themselves. And, um, and that, that, again, reinforces what Paul says about the false teacher in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Ultimately, he has other things in, he, in his life that he values more than Christ. So I'll ask you again, what things in your life do you value more than Christ? And are you putting on a facade of behavioralism? external righteousness while you know from your heart that you don't love Christ. You love your image. You love how people perceive you. It is all idolatry. And idolatry can so quickly take root in our hearts. The love of money in particular, especially deadly always pursuing those things that we think will bring satisfaction. If I only had that job that gave me that much more income a year, well, then I could have that car instead of this one. Well, then you get that car, and it's like, well, if I just had a little bit more, then I could have had that one, and, and that one would serve me so much better, or this house, or that house, and it goes on and on and on. It's a trap. It's a snare. And a godly man will flee these things. In Second Timothy chapter 2, 22, Paul also tells son and his son of the faith, Timothy, this specifically. He says, flee from youthful lusts. Flee from youthful lusts. That was trivial. And he goes on, he says, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So, very similar, very similar actually to our text this morning in verse 11. Flee from these things. In Mark chapter 14, verse 52, we get the image of what it means to flee. And there, it's in the context of the night that Jesus was betrayed and he had just been arrested by the Roman guard. And there's a man, a young man who is there wearing nothing but a linen, Eventually, he was woken up. We we're not told who the individual is. Some speculate it was Mark. Uh, maybe, maybe not. It's just a young man. And the Romans seized him, and he fled away naked. In fear, he ran. He didn't entertain what was happening. He didn't want to consider it. 
And that is the image of the man of God, one who flees sin. But, but let's talk about this, this phrase, man of God, for a little bit. Because it is no small thing that Paul would call his son of the faith, Timothy, man of God. It's a common phrase in the Old Testament. It's used about 70 times. Moses, Elisha, Elijah, David, many of the other prophets in the Old Testament are referred to as a man of God. Samuel is referred to as man of God. In 1 Kings chapter 13, go ahead and turn there. This is an interesting one. In 1 Kings chapter 13, here we have an account of the evil king Jeroboam who did not flee idolatry like many of the kings of Israel. So in in 1 Kings chapter 13 verse 1, Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah. We're not told who he is. What we know about him is he is a spokesman for God. There came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of Yahweh, while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. And he cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. That is a statement of judgment. Then he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. Now, when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! But his hand which he stretched out against him dried up, so that he could not draw back to himself. The altar was also split apart, and the ashes were poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Please entreat your Lord to God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. Water, nor return by the way which you came. So he came, so he went rather by another way and did not return by the way which he came to Bethel. How many times is this man of God called a man of God? I mean, this is a man who is committed to the word of the Lord. It confronts the king in his sin. It's remarkable, his commitment. And yet, in the verses that follow, we read his compromise because of a deceptive prophet, one who comes to him as he walks down the road and says, come, come into my house and and eat with me. And the prophet says, no, 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 I can't do that because the word of the Lord told me to run. prophet lies. He says, well, I have also received a word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord that I received said that you are supposed to come. And he believes him. He believes his words over the revealed word of the Lord. And so because he disobeyed God, the man of God is judged by God. His life is taken from him. He's not even allowed to be buried in the lands of his forefathers. He's consumed by a lion on the road who eats him and leaves his donkey as a testimony. Remarkable image of what a man of God is. And yet, how easily he can defect from the word of God. But the man of God, what characterizes him is his commitment to the word of God. He is a prophet. He's a spokesman for God. That is what the man of God is. And so in the New Testament, what we find, interestingly enough, is that there are only two occasions where someone is referred to as a man of God, a spokesman for God. Both times it is in the context of Paul's letter to his son in the faith, 
Timothy. Timothy is the only one in the entire New Testament that is called man of God. He is a steadfast proclaimer of truth. He wields God's sword, rightly dividing the word of truth. This obviously, one of those contexts where he is called man of God. Flee from these things, you man of God. No higher honor in Scripture. Of course, when I, when I think of my boys and the stewardship that the Lord has entrusted to my wife and myself with now four of them, <laughs> in the Lord's sense of humor, because of our inadequacy, this, this, is, this is the goal. For anything else that they might be in this life, for anything else that they could be in this life, this is all that matters. In a society where, where we see the feminization of men, men acting like women and women acting like men, the elimination of gender altogether, boys being taught how to be girls and doing, quite frankly, girly things, and girls being encouraged to do masculine things, it's in imperative to us that we are proactive to teach them what it means to be a man of God. It means they are leaders. It means they are steadfast to the truth. It means they love Christ's Word. And they are dedicated to Christ's Word. That's what this is. And he continues on, what is the second commitment what is the second character of the true shepherd or the second cardinal characteristic of any authentic Christian that we need to be committed to? Well, Paul goes on. It's pretty obvious. Now, these it might not surprise you. You might have caught on already, but they're just following the verbal commands. Very easy to pick out our outline this morning. Flee from these things. That's the first one. Flee false doctrine, false doctrine that corrupts, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Now we have, we have six things that we are to pursue, that we are to put on. First of all, righteousness. Righteousness is a pregnant term in the Scriptures, isn't it? It is a deeply theologically rich term. Tegayosune. Very full term. It's not talking about, we have obviously positional righteousness. Positional righteousness, of course, in Romans chapter 9, verse 30. You can jot that in your margin. We're not going to turn there. But in Romans chapter 9, verse 30, we see righteousness that is given to us by faith. A righteousness that is not our own. A righteousness that is imputed to us. A righteousness which theologians refer to as extra nos. What Martin Luther called an alien righteousness. So, next Reformation Day... I mean Halloween. You can dress up as an alien. And when people ask you why you're dressed up as an alien, you can say, well, because today is Reformation Day. And uh, being Reformation Day, Martin Luther advocated the reality that because we are all sinners we need an alien righteousness that is given to us by faith alone. A righteousness that is from outside ourselves. I'm being facetious. You can take it or leave it. <laughs> but the point is, this is a righteousness that is not our own. It has to be given to us by faith, imputed to us. We have to be declared judicially righteous. We have to be such that when God looks upon us, 
We are justified and cleansed in His sight because Christ's atonement, His blood, has, has cleansed us from all sin. He sees the righteousness of His beloved Son because our sin was imputed to Him on the cross. Romans chapter 10 verse 3 uh, Romans chapter 10 verse 3 Paul also talks about the righteousness of God the righteousness of God that is necessary in order to inherit eternal life and by the way what is so interesting about that is because it is in the context Paul says a righteousness that is not your own This is not your own righteousness. So he's setting a contrast here. Salvation, to receive eternal life, you must have a righteousness of God, not a righteousness that comes from your own. This is not a a righteousness that comes from within. This is, again, a righteousness that is given to you by faith. This is not a righteousness of your own conscientiousness. This is not a righteousness of whatever you happen to think righteousness is. So, Paul's point in Romans 10.3, we are all held accountable to the righteousness of God whether you're conscious of it or not. All men must be given the righteousness of God. So obviously, that, that is a large sense of the meaning of righteousness. But here, here, Paul is talking about practical righteousness. He's not talking about positional righteousness here. He's talking about practical righteousness. James 3, the kind of righteousness that is the natural fruit of our faith. The natural result of regeneration. And just as it is completely illogical for a man to be resurrected from physical death, Think Lazarus at the word of the Lord. To stay in the grave and to continue to act like a dead man. So it is completely irrational, completely illogical for one who has been redeemed, for one who has been given new life in Christ, to continue to act as a sinful dead man. Well, as one who has been regenerated, one who has been given the gift of life, now pursues God. Pursues what is righteous and good. He acts like a live man. He submits to the Lordship of Christ. Hebrews 12. Just want to read this to you very quickly. Hebrews 12, 28, 29 says, Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Practical righteousness. One born out of affection for what Christ has done. Proverbs, Proverbs 15.9. Very quickly. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But He loves one who pursues righteousness. Secondly, godliness. It's fascinating that Paul will reinforce the first description of the second characteristic that defines any authentic Christian that is to be expected of any shepherd in Timothy would be a description that reinforces the first because righteousness here is is the visible manifestation of what Christ has done in us, right? 
That, that's what we're talking about. When Paul talks about righteousness, he's talking about the visible manifestation of good works because we have been regenerated by God. Well, godliness talks about the changed heart. That's, that's the purpose of, uh, of the word godliness. That's what Paul is getting at there. He's talking about the scope of the heart has changed. The heart of stone has been replaced with the heart of flesh. And because his heart is changed, obviously what is born from out of him is righteousness. Just like we talked about, the regenerate man will live like a regenerate man. Romans chapter 6, right? Every single time we have a baptism, this is what we're representing. The new life that we have been given in Christ. We don't leave the person stuck under the water for a reason. They've been given a new life. And therefore, walk in newness of life. That is, again, Romans chapter 6, we're slaves of righteousness. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul already told Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Pay close attention to your godliness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, obviously, we were just here recently, but Paul says to run the race that is set before us as those who want to win the prize. That's how we're supposed to run. We're just supposed to discipline ourselves to godliness. But Paul also says, um, holding his life out as, as an example, in verse 26, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. What he's saying there is that he buffets his body. I discipline my body. I buffet my body. Now, listen, folks. This is no pillow fight. He's not taking a silken tissue and swatting you across the cheek with it. I remember my grandmother had a paddle. And it was the kind of paddle that you might expect from any grandmother. It was a paint stick with a heart. And it was heavily padded. And I loved it. It wasn't my father's. (laughs) That's not the kind of buffeting that Paul is talking about. A boxer in ancient Rome was a life-or-death proposition. You didn't lose. It was all or nothing. It wasn't even like today, where you can beat one another senseless, you see the gaping wounds, the swollen face by the end of the match. They would uh, get a piece of leather, wear a leather glove, that's all. No padding, just a leather glove. And they would stitch lead and iron into the leather glove. So this is the precursor to brass knuckle. And the, and the leather is just there to protect your own flesh from tearing upon administering the blow. That's the kind of boxing that Paul talks about. That's the discipline that he's talking about. And by the way, it was life or death. But if you lost and lived, your eyes would be gouged out. Boxing was no childish prospect. It was a severe issue. And and this is the kind of godliness that we must subject ourselves to. The kind of discipline. Discipline that completely buffets our heart into soft, malleable tissue that is readily willing to receive the Word of Christ. And because that godliness, that godly heart from within, the fruit, obviously, of that is righteousness. I'm actually supposed to preach today without notes, and I am preaching it without notes, but I have a quote in my Bible written by the Puritan John Flavel. And so I hope this doesn't qualify as preaching with notes. But it was too good of a quote. I have another one by J.C. Ryle, too. 
That's for later, if we get to it. But John Flavel says, Brethren, it is easier to declare a thousand sins of others than to mortify one sin in ourselves. Unless you discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, and we love our Lord. Your love for the Lord is what's going to determine your commitment to godliness. Faith, love, perseverance, gentleness, these things are often coupled together, faith and love especially. These are the things that characterize a Christian in Matthew 6, verses 25 and 34. You know that passage well. Jesus says, see how the lilies of the field grow? They do not... Uh, well, I forget. You know how it goes. I was actually going to quote what he says about the birds of the air. The lilies of the field, they don't, they don't uh, spoil. They, they don't reap up for themselves fine linens. And yet Solomon, unlike Solomon in all of his splendor, is dressed like one of these. The birds of the air, see the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns and what? Yet your, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? The point is, don't worry about tomorrow. This, this is not faith, talking about faith unto salvation here. This is, this is talking about the practical trust in the Lord. In his sovereignty, in the Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34 kind of way, the, the kind that drives out anxiety, the kind that, that doesn't live in an environment of fear, that isn't always worried about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough troubles of its own. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul talks about the one who is faint-hearted, the one who is small-souled, the one who is small in the faith, in other words. That's who that is. The one who is easily depressed. The one who is easily sorrowful. Disappointed with the outcomes of life because of a heart of discontentment that is so often associated with anger as well. And so for the word, the word that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we would understand in the context of 21st century vernacular as, as the one who is who's just depressed one who is overwhelmed with grief because of his allotment in life, the faint-hearted. And we are to admonish such a one. They are not to live in that condition. We are to do so with all patience and instruction. Encouraging them to grow in maturity and in their faith. And in their love. Interestingly, in 1 John chapter 4, you know that in 1 John, John writes to the church because they had lost, well, they, they had feared that they had lost God's love. There are those who are propagating sort of a mystic form of, of righteousness. And in 1 John 4, 18, John writes, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. So love and faith are directly proportionate with one another. And Paul goes on, actually in the verses that precede this, in verses 7 to 12, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who lo- does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In other words, 
The one who is a Christian loves because he loves what God loves. True Christian loves what God loves. Also, perseverance. I am quickly running out of time. I'm trying to evaluate how to approach because we're only on our second of our three points. Believe me when I say that my notes help me stay disciplined and get my sermon out. It doesn't seem like that the most of the time, but when I'm without notes, it's all the worse. So, I thought I'd be letting you out on time. I'm not, but I will, I mean, early, I will let you out on time. That is my commitment because, again, I want you to be here tonight to join us in prayer for the lost in, in our area. But, but you also perseverance. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, you know that. Hold fast to which is good. That's the idea. Holding fast. Actually, it's the same word. Perseverance, hold fast. Clutch, cling to. that which is good. Gentleness. Speaking with gentleness. Proverbs says, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word rightly spoken, timely spoken. We want our words to be confrontational but constructive at the same time. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no unwholesome word come forth out of your mouth except that which is edifying and suitable, building up, according to the need of the, mom- of the moment in order to bring grace to those who hear it. That word for foul, what is corrupt, literally would be translated whatever is rotten, whatever is putrid. Anything. We're not just limiting ourselves to taking the Lord's name in vain or four-letter cuss words. We're talking about tone. We're talking about sarcasm. We're talking about attitude. Anything that cuts down. It doesn't mean that we don't speak truth. By no means does it mean that we don't speak truth, but we speak truth in love. Well, the third, the third characteristic of the authentic Christian, the third commitment that we must make, the, fir- the third commitment that a man of God must make, and obviously we would all want to be designated such, would be to fight the faith. Paul says in verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Literally agonize, agonize. Here's that quote from J.C. Ryle. He says, it is a fight of absolute necessity. Think not that in this war you can remain neutral and sit still. Such a line of action may be possible in the strife of nations when the world's in war. But such an action's utterly impossible in the conflict which concerns the soul. The boasting palsy of non-interference, the masterly inactivity which pleases so many statesmen, the plans of keeping quiet and letting things alone, all this will never do in the Christian warfare. This is about doctrinal dogmatism. Do you know why? Jesus warns us why in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. It says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, you might be saying, well, what does it have to do with fighting the good fight? I'll ask you. We've already talked about the wolf in sheep's clothing. But do you think that if they have deceived themselves in their false gospel, that they do not also deceive many in the church? Paul says it's possible in Galatians. He calls you bewitched. The one who has gone astray. The one who has been given the truth, knows the truth, and has forsaken the truth, and followed after some false gospel. Some counterfeit. We know Paul's commitment to this in, in 1 Timothy as a whole. If you look back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, just to kind of remind you of these things, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, as I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Verse 18, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck regarding their faith. Chapter 4, verse 6, And pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Obviously, that's our aspiration. But, verse 7, Have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Verse 16, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. Verse 20 and 21, We haven't gotten there yet, but they're coming. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding words worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge which some have professed and thus gone away from the faith. Grace be with you. Obviously, we'd want to, we'd want to fight. But we'd also want to hold fast to that grace, wouldn't we? And so... That's where Paul gives us the fourth, the fourth characteristic that we want to commit to as faithful Christians. That ought to characterize the authentic Christian to hold fast to grace, hold fast to the eternal realities before us. Paul says, verse 12, take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Clinch. Clinch. Talking about sort of white knuckle type of grip. Second Timothy 2, Paul says that this is, this is the result of your election. You understand that God called you? And God called you has a purpose for you to accomplish. And therefore, you need to hold fast to your effectual calling. Romans 8.30. And last of all, we're to keep the commandment. What's that? Very simple. The commandment here that we keep without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do it tirelessly. We do it with discipline. We're fighting for it. We're holding fast to it. We're pursuing it. We're fleeing from those things that distract from it. The commandment is all the revealed will of God. All of Scripture. God is expects us to live in conformity with His Word. Interestingly, all the verbs up to this point are imperative commands. This last one, Paul switches to an aorist infinitive 
And to be honest, I'm, I'm not sure why he does that, but there, there is a, there's something that is called the heiress infinitive of, of purpose. In other words, you would translate this, uh, you do all these things, you, you flee false doctrine, you pursue practical Christ-likeness, you fight the, the fight for the faith, you hold fast to eternal realities so that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. which he is faithful to bring about in the proper time. The one who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. And of course then to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, you have called each of us to a high and noble calling. You have entrusted us with a tremendous stewardship. We thank you that your grace is sufficient and that your word is complete. We're not left wanting of anything as we pursue holiness and righteousness and proclaim your truth to the world. Lord, we pray that by your grace we would be faithful. Just as by your grace we can inherit eternal life. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. You've been listening to the expository Bible teaching of our pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr, on the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, and we pray you have been blessed by what you've heard. If you have any questions about the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or if you would like to speak with someone concerning salvation through faith, please reach out to us right away. It would be a great joy and blessing to minister to you. Contact information can be found on our website. If you have any additional questions or comments regarding this sermon, would like to know more about our church, or would like to submit a prayer request, just visit us online at highpointbaptist.church. Additional sermons can be found on the SermonCast page of our website and may be downloaded or streamed free of charge. Our website again is highpointbaptist.church. Thank you again for listening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Copyright 2018, High Point Baptist Church, All Rights Reserved.